Excuse me. I think we're ready to start. Uh, my name is Chris Hedges. I'm a reporter with the New York Times and spent almost 20 years as a war correspondent. I'm the author of a book called War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. Um, each of our speakers is going to speak for 15 minutes, and I will promise to cut them off at the end of 15 minutes. Um, I will then ask uh, our speakers the first question, and then we will take questions from the uh, audience. Please keep the questions brief, um, and don't make statements, just ask questions. Um, <laughs> We will finish at 5.45, and those who have dinner and meal tickets uh, can go to Dylan Jim. Those uh, that do not and would like to hear uh, John Giddes, um, Kennan's biographer, speak are welcome to come at 7 o'clock for his talk. To my immediate left is John Mearsheimer. He is the R. Wendell Harrison Distinguished Service Professor at the University of Chicago. His books include The Tragedy of Great Power Politics, as well as Conventional Deterrence. He is a West Point graduate and was one of the outspoken opponents of the war in Iraq, arguing that containment was preferable to the policy of preventive or preemptive war. To his left is uh, Joseph Nye. Uh, he is the Don K. Price Professor of Public Policy and the Dean of the Kennedy School at Harvard. He returned to Harvard in December of 1995 after serving as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, in which position he won two Distinguished Service Medals and is Chair of the National Intelligence Council. He joined the Harvard faculty in 1964 serving as director of the Center for International Affairs and associate dean of arts and sciences. From 1977 to 1979, Mr. Nye was deputy to the Undersecretary of State for Security Assistance, Science, and Technology, and chaired the National Security Council Group on Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons. His most recent books are The Paradox of American Power, which I highly recommend, and Understanding International Conflicts. Uh, to his left is Colonel Dallas Brown. He's a graduate of uh, Princeton, class of 1978. He is the Director for Peacekeeping in the Office of the Secretary of Defense at the Pentagon. His previous assignments include a battalion command deployment in Bosnia. Uh, he spent four months uh, recently in Iraq. He was also the Director for Global Issues and Multilateral Affairs for the NSC. Thank you very much. John? Thank you very much, Chris. It's a uh, great honor to be here to pay tribute to George Kennan on his 100th birthday. He's not only one of the most important American policymakers and strategic thinkers of the 20th century, but he is also one of the leading realists of the 20th century, a tribe that I consider myself to be a card-carrying member of. I think 
Given that we are celebrating Kennan's 100th birthday, it would be appropriate to talk about the subject of containment in the 21st century. I think the best way to talk about that subject is to, first of all, start with a simple framework uh, and then proceed to talk about containment during the Cold War, very briefly, focusing on uh, a particular case, and then to switch to talking about containment in the 21st century. So let me start off with this framework on how I think about containment. I think when you're dealing with an adversarial state, you have basically two broad choices for a strategy. One is containment, and the other is rollback. You all know what containment is. Let me say a few words about rollback. States can do rollback in one of two different ways. One, you can launch a preventive war uh, with your own forces. Or two, you can escalate an ongoing conflict to alter the status quo. In other words, to roll back the adversary uh, in a particular place where you're fighting him or his client states. Obviously, containment is a very defensively oriented strategy, and rollback is a very offensively oriented strategy. Containment is by and large identified with realists. Rollback is by and large identified with the right. In fact, Kennan was the principal intellectual father of realism, as was made clear here today. The principal intellectual father of rollback during the Cold War was James Burnham. And you Princeton graduates in the audience will be pleased to know that both Kennan and Burnham were Princetonians. My view is that containment almost always makes more sense than rollback. There may be very special circumstances where rollback makes sense, but by and large, you're much better off pursuing containment. I would argue that in the past century, there are two prominent cases of rollback. The first was when we crossed the 38th parallel during the Korean War, and the second was the war against Iraq. And I want to say a few words about both of them. The conventional wisdom, and I think it was reflected to some extent in today's comments, was that during the early Cold War, containment got locked in and rollback was basically defeated. Now that the archives have been opened and we see what's in there, it's quite clear that there was much more support for rollback inside the administration, this is the Truman administration, in the late 40s than we recognized. In fact, many of the China hands, the people who tail gunner Joe McCarthy burned uh, in such a despicable way in the early 1950s, were advocates of rollback. O. Edmund Club, for example, said, our problem is to begin to roll up the satellites by positive action and not simply to remain in a defensive posture. John Carter Vincent wrote, personally, I believe we should cross the 38th parallel when set to do so, irrespective of whether Chowan Lai is bluffing or not. I could go on and on. There are all sorts of other examples. Well, what happened was, as most of you know, in the summer of 1950, we had a great opportunity to put rollback into play. And that was when the Korean War started going our way 
and we thought about crossing the 38th parallel. In fact, there was much support in the government for crossing the 38th parallel. We crossed the 38th parallel, and the end result was disaster. Our first attempt at rollback failed miserably. This is what Dean Acheson, who was an enthusiastic supporter at the time, later said. An incalculable defeat to U.S. foreign policy, and it destroyed the Truman administration. It was the worst defeat, said Kennan, since Bull Run. Now, as I said, you want to keep in mind that there was great enthusiasm for that operation. There was, in fact, one person who opposed the operation, uh, one prominent person who opposed the operation, uh, and that was George Kennan. Now, let's shift to the world today. In the post-Cold War world, we're obviously not worrying about the Soviet threat. The principal threat that we now worry about leaving aside terrorists, which are not states. But the principal states in the system that we worry about are rogue states with WMD and really rogue states with nuclear weapons. And we have, with regard to these rogue states, the same choice we had during the Cold War with the Soviet Union. Either can, we could either pursue containment or we can pursue rollback. And today when we talk about rollback, we're really talking about preventive war. The containment versus preventive war dichotomy is the same as the containment versus rollback dichotomy. Now, the Bush administration came to the conclusion in 2002 that preventive war is much preferable to containment. And in fact, Iraq was the first example of that preventive war strategy or rollback strategy being put into play. Now, what has happened, in my opinion, in Iraq is that it has gone very badly. It certainly has not gone the way its proponents said it would go, and in my opinion, it's going to get much worse. And with the passage of time, we will look back on it as a major strategic blunder. And I think that the war in Iraq demonstrates very clearly that the Bush doctrine, and the Bush doctrine is really all about preventive war, is not a viable long-term strategy for the United States. And in fact, what the Bush administration should have done vis-a-vis -vis Iraq, and what it should do in the future is pursue a policy of containment, not a policy of preventive war. Now, why do I say that? I want to give you four reasons why I think that preventive war is not a viable long-term strategy for the United States. First of all, by running around the world invading states or threatening to invade states, you create very powerful incentives for potential adversaries out there to acquire nuclear weapons to defend themselves. Secretary of State Powell seems to have a lot of difficulty understanding why states want nuclear weapons. Well, I'll explain that to you. The reason that states want nuclear weapons, the reason the United States has nuclear weapons, the reason Israel has nuclear weapons, the reason India has nuclear weapons, is that they are a wonderful deterrent. You don't see us making any effort to get rid of our nuclear weapons because we understand they provide great utility. Well, if you run around the world threatening other states, those states are going to want nuclear weapons to protect themselves. You don't have to like Kim Jong-il. You don't have to like the Ayatollahs in Iran. But it is perfectly understandable why they want nuclear weapons to defend themselves. They are a great deterrent. So if you go around and you whack Iraq and you whack Iran, don't be surprised if all your other potential adversaries want nuclear weapons more than ever. What is the end result of this? 
we end up in a series of endless wars. I don't know about you, but as an American, I'm not interested in fighting a series of endless wars throughout the 21st century. Second reason that rollback is a bad strategy is that it involves conquering and occupying countries in the developing world for long periods of time. It especially involves conquering and occupying countries in the Arab and Islamic world. This, in my opinion, is a delusional strategy. One thing I learned in the 20th century as I watched decolonization play itself out, as I watched the great empires of Britain, France, the Dutch, the Portuguese, and so forth and so on collapse around us in the 20th century, was that it is very difficult from people, for people from countries like the United States to go across the Atlantic Ocean and to occupy countries in the developing world because of nationalism. Nationalism is the most powerful political ideology on the face of the earth, and the fact of the matter is that these people in the developing world, for perfectly understandable reasons, do not want us coming in and telling them how to run their business. Furthermore, you're talking about going into the Arab and Islamic world, where, to quote Tom Friedman, we are radioactive because of our support for Israel. So I think the idea that we are going to be able to go from country to country in the Middle East and transform that region into a sea of democracies uh, is not a smart idea. Now, the third reason that I don't like preventive war is because I think that even if you transform those countries into democracies, they're still going to want nuclear weapons and you're not going to solve the basic problem. As most of you have surely figured out, there are eight countries in the world that have nuclear weapons. Five of them are democracies. The United States, France, Britain, Israel, and India are democracies. And if you want to count Russia, that's six out of eight countries. And I don't see any evidence, as I said before, that the United States or Israel is anxious to get rid of their nuclear weapons. Do you see any evidence of that? I think not. And why is that the case? Because democracies like non-democracies figure out that nuclear weapons make you very secure. Nobody fools around with you when you have nuclear weapons. So even if this grand strategy of transforming the Middle East at the end of a rifle barrel pans out, and I'd bet a lot of money it's not going to pan out, and you get all those democracies, the end result is going to be that they still want nuclear weapons. And we're going to be back to square one. Final reason that I like containment over preventive war is that containment actually works. And the historical record is quite clear here. Now, it's not a perfect strategy, but as I often tell students at the University of Chicago, international politics is all about choosing among lousy strategies or lousy alternatives. It's not like there's any really terrific strategy for any problem. And I think containment works pretty good. Now, let me review two of the counters against containment and knock them down. One is, and President Bush and Condoleezza Rice often made this argument during the run-up to the war in Iraq. If Saddam were to get nuclear weapons, uh, he could use those nuclear weapons to blackmail us. This is a fallacious argument, and anybody who's taken a basic deterrence course knows it's a fallacious argument. You can't blackmail someone with nuclear weapons if that someone has nuclear weapons of his or her own, and we have nuclear weapons. Just think about it. The mighty Soviet Union had many, many thousands of nuclear weapons. They were far more powerful than Iraq would ever be if it had nuclear weapons. And the Soviet Union not only didn't try 
to blackmail us. It never blackmailed us, right? It just didn't even try to blackmail us. They knew they couldn't blackmail us, and we knew we couldn't blackmail them. Well, if Joe Stalin with thousands of nuclear weapons couldn't blackmail us, I wish somebody would please explain to me how Saddam Hussein with a handful of nuclear weapons was going to blackmail us. They never explained that magic formula to me. Then is the argument that Saddam would have given WMD nuclear weapons to al-Qaeda. They tried mightily to provide evidence that there was a link between Saddam and al-Qaeda, uh, and they've never proven that there was any link. But moreover, it would have been crazy for Saddam to give nuclear weapons to al-Qaeda. First of all, there was a possibility al-Qaeda would have used those weapons against him. But furthermore, if al-Qaeda had used those nuclear weapons against us, we would have come after Saddam, whether we knew he was responsible for transferring them to al-Qaeda or not. We're going after him anyway because we think he was involved in 9-11 when we had no evidence of that. We surely would have gone after him if he gave nuclear weapons to al-Qaeda, even if we didn't have hard evidence of it. And there's no way he could bet we wouldn't have hard evidence of it. So it made no strategic sense for him or anybody else to give weapons of mass destruction to al-Qaeda. So the bottom line here is that we could have contained Iraq. And in fact, we will end up containing North Korea, because I do not believe we're going to go to war against North Korea, in good part because we're pinned down in this quagmire now called Iraq. But we'll learn to live with containment in North Korea. Is it a perfect solution? No. But I think it's, again, the best of a lot of bad alternatives. So what is my basic view on what American policy should be towards rogue states and proliferation in the 21st century? First of all, I do believe we should go to great lengths diplomatically and economically to prevent nuclear proliferation. It's not in our interest to have states like Iraq and Iran and North Korea have nuclear weapons. I'd prefer they not have them. Uh, and as I say, I'd use diplomatic and economic leverage to achieve that end. But I would not go to war for that purpose. Uh, if we fail to prevent proliferation with those states, much the way we failed to prevent proliferation with the Soviet Union and with China and with India and Pakistan, we learned to live with those situations. We relied mainly on containment during the Cold War, and I think there's no reason that we shouldn't be able to rely on containment in the century ahead. Thank you. As we try to think about American power and strategy today, it's worth looking back a little bit and imagine that we were having this on George Kennan's 90th birthday, or perhaps his 85th birthday, and asking ourselves, what would have been the conventional wisdom about the United States' role in the world at that time? Do you remember that far back? The conventional wisdom was that the United States was in decline. My friend, the great Yale historian Paul Kennedy, wrote a book called The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, which made it to the bestseller list. I wrote a book uh, uh, it's called Bound to Lead, saying the United States would be the leading country of the 21st century. Turned out I was right, but Paul got all the royalties. <laughs> and Paul Sungus, when he was campaigning in the New Hampshire primary in 1992, went through the snows of New Hampshire and... His slogan is, the Cold War is over and Japan has won. The reason I remind us of this 
is to make sure that when we look at the current situation where the United States is so preeminent, indeed no country has loomed so large over others since the days of Rome, that we not project that in a linear fashion into the future and make the opposite type of error that the declinists made when they predicted the end of American power a decade and a half ago. In fact, the world was changing in the latter parts of the 20th century under the influence of globalization and information revolution in ways which meant that on September 11th, we were like a traveler on a summer evening through an a strange landscape who suddenly sees a flash of lightning. The landscape is illuminated with enormous obstacles and then it goes dark again. That's where we are in terms of American power and strategy at the beginning of the 21st century. Now, a year and a half ago, the Bush administration published its national security strategy, which articulated a dramatic change in our foreign policy outlook uh, that responded to 9-11. The new strategy said that uh, we're menaced less by fleets and armies than by catastrophic technologies falling into the hands of the embittered few. And the new Bush strategy was the first significant departure from the paradigm that won the Cold War and guided, guided us through the first decade of its aftermath. Indeed, in June of 2002, President Bush told the graduating class of West Point how the present differed from the past. He acknowledged the successful ideas of George Kennan and his contemporaries noting that for much of the last century, America's defense relied on the Cold War doctrines of deterrence and containment, but then he observed that the new threats required new thinking. And the deterrence, the policy of massive retaliation and containment was no longer possible, as John Mearsheimer has indicated in uh, his presentation. The rhetoric of the new strategy attracted criticism at home and abroad, but as my friend and our distinguished dinner speaker tonight, John Lewis Gaddis, uh, said, in its boldness and vision, it was similar to the seminal work of George Kennan and others at the onset of the Cold War. But it had some flaws, which I think John has indicated some, but also some stylistic flaws. Trumpeting American primacy violated Teddy Roosevelt's advice about speaking softly when you carry a big stick. And the United States is indisputably number one, but there's no need to rub others' noses in it. And the neo-Wilsonian promises to promote democracy and freedom struck some traditional realists as dangerously unbalanced and unbounded. The statements about cooperation and coalitions were not followed by equal discussions of institutions. And the much-criticized assertion of a right to preempt could either be interpreted as routine self-defense or a dangerous new precedent. From a strategic standpoint, the Iraq War should be interpreted not as the beginning of the new strategy, in my view, but as the last chapter of the 20th century. Not only was it unfinished business in the minds of the planners, but it also rested on more than a decade of unfulfilled Security Council resolutions. And with a different approach to its diplomacy, I believe the administration could have built a broader coalition focused on the sins of Saddam Hussein rather than allowing France and Russia to turn the problem into a referendum on American power. 
Moreover, the administration is currently faced with another dangerous dictator who is much closer to nuclear weapons and was a year ago than Iraq ever was, and that's North Korea. North Korea may, in fact, be the test of whether the new strategy is implementable. And thus far, the administration has responded cautiously in close consultation with allies. In this case, deterrence has been turned on its head. North Korea's conventional capacity to wreak havoc on Seoul in the event of war has deterred U.S. military action. Before the Iraq War, there were disagreements within the administration as to how to implement this new strategy. And the run-up to the war highlighted some of these differences. You had essentially some of the neoconservative Wilsonians of the right and the would have been called the Jacksonian assertive nationalists pitted against the more multilateral and traditional Republican realists. The tug of war within the administration was visible both in the strategy document and in the prelude to the war. And last August of a year ago, August 02, we saw statements by Vice President Cheney and Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld disparaging the UN as a false comfort while traditional realist Republicans such as Brent Scrocroft and Jim Baker urged a multilateral approach. On September 12, 2002, the president seemed to side with those traditional views, but it was a brief victory, and we know the outcome. In 2001, the columnist Charles Krauthammer had presaged the administration's vision when he argued for a new unilateralism, one in which the United States refuses to play the role of, in his words, a docile international citizen and unashamedly pursues its own ends. But the new unilateralists go a step further. They believe that today we're in such dire straits that we must escape the constraints of the multilateral structures that were built after World War II. In their view, the implementation of a new strategy requires more radical change. As Philip Stevens of the Financial Times put it, they would like to reverse Dean Acheson's famous title and be present at the destruction. They deliberately resisted calling upon NATO after Washington's allies invoked Article 5, offering collective self-defense in the wake of 9-11. And they sought to minimize the role of the UN in Iraq, both before and also after the war. In Secretary Rumsfeld's words, the issue should determine the coalitions, not vice versa. Some advocates did not shrink from an explicit imperial approach. In the words of William Crystal, the editor of the Weekly Standard, if people want to say we're an imperial power, fine. Now, I think this is a flawed way of thinking about the implementation of the president's new strategy. I happen to think the president is correct to focus American foreign policy and strategy for the 21st century on the threat of terrorists and weapons of mass destruction. But for the strategy to be successful, we're going to have to spend much more attention on what I've called soft power. I have a book that's coming out next week called Soft Power, The Means to Success in World Politics. This does not mean it's the only way to succeed, but it means that it is essential. And it's not a question of realism versus idealism. Uh, soft power is a form of power. The ability to attract is a way to get something you want. After all, if Hans Morgenthau, the great realist, said that uh, realism means national interest determined or defined in terms of power, then you have to think of all dimensions of power, soft as well as hard. And in that sense, I think it's worth remembering that George Kennan understood soft power. 
If you go back to the debates between Kennan and NSC 68 that we heard about in the first panel this afternoon, you'll see that a good deal of it was about soft power. Or listen to Secretary Powell this morning when he talked about the contents of foreign policy for success, how much of it was a policy relating to attraction and soft power. Indeed, when he said containment is in part, as a lieutenant, being stuck out there saying, you defend against the Russian army between this tree and that tree, that was an important part of containment, American hard power. But the real success was our soft power, the attractiveness of our culture and values and ideas that ate away from them from inside. In that sense, the willingness of other countries to cooperate with us in dealing with transnational issues, such as terrorism, depend in part on their, their self-interest, but also on our attractiveness. And our soft power lies in the ability to attract and persuade rather than coerce. It means that others want what we want, and there's less need to use their carrots and sticks. Hard power, the ability to coerce, grows out of a country's military and economic might. Soft power arises from the attractiveness of a country's culture, political ideals, and the legitimacy of its policies. Hard power will always remain crucial in a world of nation states guarding their independence. But soft power will become increasingly important in dealing with transnational issues that require multilateral cooperation for their solution. One of Secretary Rumsfeld's famous rules is that weakness is provocative. In this, he is correct. As Osama bin Laden observed, it's best to bet on the strong horse. The effective demonstration of military power in the Iraq War, as in the first Gulf War, may have had a long-term deterrent effect, as well as transformative effects in the Middle East. But it's worth remembering the first Gulf War, which led to the Oslo peace process, was widely regarded as legitimate, whereas legitimacy of the more recent war is still contested. Unable to balance American military power, France, Germany, Russia, and China created a coalition to balance American soft power, depriving the United States of legitimacy that might have been bestowed by a second UN resolution. Although such soft balancing did not avert the war in Iraq, it certainly raised its price. When Turkish parliamentarians regarded U.S. policy as illegitimate, they refused Pentagon requests to allow us to send the 4th Infantry Division to enter Iraq from the north. Inadequate attention to soft power was detrimental to our hard power, and it was costly to us. The costs of going it alone have been more apparent in the 10 months since the U.S. has occupied Iraq. The reconstruction effort to date has been plagued by violence and instability and stands in sharp contrast to our unquestioned military success in deposing the Iraqi regime. Many of our allies have been reluctant to contribute money or personnel to help. And the administration has found it difficult to convince key countries to share the burden of, after some top U.S. officials expressed contempt for their opinions before and during the war. We do see now a coming around a willingness to try to involve Kofi Annan and the UN. Too bad it's too late, or so late. We could have saved many lives and treasure had we, in May of 2003, taken the position which we seem to be coming to now. One instructive use of soft power that the Pentagon did get right was the way in which it opened information in terms of the reporters in the war. 
But in general, the inattention to soft power, I think, has been costly to the implementation of the new strategy. Proponents of the neoconservative strand in the new unilateralism are more attentive to some aspects of soft power than the assertive nationalists, the so-called Jacksonians. They have a Wilsonian emphasis on democracy and human rights that can make U.S. policies detractive to others when these values appear genuine or pursued in a fair-minded way. The human rights abuses of Saddam Hussein's regime have thus become a major post hoc legitimization of the war. Moreover, as indicated earlier, the Bush administration has made wise investments in American soft power, as Secretary Powell said this morning, by increasing development aid and offering assistance in the campaign against HIV-AIDS. But although they share Woodrow Wilson's desire to spread democracy, the neo-Wilsonians, or neoconservatives, ignore his emphasis on institutions. In the absence of international institutions through which others can feel consulted and involved, the imperial imposition of values may not attract others, nor produce soft power. In that sense, I think what we're seeing is that the resistance to using the UN, though we're coming around to it rather late, is based on the view that it's a difficult institution. It is. The power of the veto in the Security Council has prevented the UN from authorizing the use of force for collective security operations in all but two cases in the half century after World War II. But the Council was specifically designed to be a concert of large powers that would work, not work when they disagreed. The veto is like a fuse box in an electrical system of house. Better that a fuse blows and the lights go out than that the house burns down. Moreover, as Kofi Annan pointed out after the Kosovo War proceeded in 1999 without a UN resolution, but note with French and German participation, the UN is torn between the strict Westphalian interpretation of state sovereignty and the rise of international humanitarian and human rights law that sets limits on what leaders can do to their citizens. To complicate matters further, politics has made the UN Charter virtually impossible to amend. Yet still, for all its flaws, the UN has proved useful in its humanitarian peacekeeping roles on which states agree, and it remains an important source of legitimacy in world politics. Rather than engage in futile efforts to ignore the UN or challenge its architecture, Washington should approve its underlying bilateral diplomacy with the other veto-wielding powers and to use the UN in practical ways to further the new strategy. In addition to overseeing the UN's development and humanitarian agenda, the Security Council may wind up playing a background role in diffusing the crisis in North Korea and the committee and the various problems related to Iran. There's considerable evidence that the unilateralist policies tended to squander American soft power. Before the war, a Pew Research Center poll found that U.S. policies led to less favorable attitudes toward the United States over the past two years in 19 of 27 countries. Other polls showed an average drop of 30 points in the attractiveness of the United States in major European countries, including those like Italy and Britain that supported us. No large country can afford to be purely multilateralist, and sometimes the United States must take the lead by itself, as it did in Afghanistan. But no country situated like the United States can afford to ignore the legitimization that comes from working through institutions. Basically, we are faced with a paradox of primacy. 
The problem of U.S. power for the 21st century is that more and more countries fall outside the control of even the most powerful state. Although the United States does well on traditional measures of hard power, these measures fail to capture the ongoing transformation of world politics brought about by globalization and the democratization of technology. The paradox of American power is that world politics is changing in a way that makes it impossible for the strongest world power since Rome to achieve some of its most crucial international goals acting alone, and particularly those goals that are identified in the new national security strategy. The United States lacks both the international and domestic capacity to resolve conflicts that are internal to other societies and to monitor and control transnational developments that threaten Americans at home. Of many of today's key issues, such as international financial stability, drug trafficking, the spread of diseases, the, especially the new terrorism, military power alone simply cannot produce success, and its use can sometimes be counterproductive. Instead, the most powerful country, the United States, must mobilize international coalitions to address these shared threats and challenges. As for hard power, the United States will continue to need it in the struggle against terrorism and in our efforts to create stability, maintaining our hard power is essential to security. But we will not succeed by the sword alone. Our doctrine of containment led to success in the Cold War not just because of military deterrence, but because as George Kennan designed the policy, our soft power would help to transform the Soviet bloc from within. Containment was not a static military doctrine, but a transformational strategy, albeit one that took decades to accomplish. Kennan frequently warned against what he regarded as the over-militarization of containment and was a strong supporter of contacts and exchanges. He placed high importance on cultural contact as a means of combating negative impressions about this country that marked so much of world opinion. Those are his words. He once said, and again in his words, he would willingly trade the entire remaining inventory of political propaganda for the results that could be achieved by such means alone as contacts among peoples. These lessons about patience and the mixture of hard and soft power that George Kennan taught 50 years ago stand us in good stead today. Thank you. I'd like to first express my thanks to Dan Link and the people who put this conference together today. Uh, I realize that I'm the last speaker of the afternoon, and I appreciate your patience. Uh, I promise that I will try to be at least a little brief. Um, they say that any day away from the Pentagon is a good day. Uh, for me personally, I turn this into a two-day trip, so I think it's a great day uh, to be back up here at Princeton. Uh, I'd like, before I begin my, my remarks, though, to, to echo what Ambassador Hutchings said uh, in the previous session. Uh, and that I also tend to go off the reservation a little bit. I'd like to say for the record that uh, anything I have to say uh, in these remarks are personal opinions, uh, not the position or the policy of the Department of Defense or of the United States government overall. So please, uh, please bear that in mind. Uh, I'd also like to point out, uh, and several of the speakers have alluded to this already, uh, several West Point cadets that we have here in the audience. Um, uh, I told one of them during one of the breaks that it's great that uh, the hierarchy up there um, has allowed them to escape from West Point for a couple of days. I know that's a great thing for them. Uh, I would also, I also know from a previous question that there's at least one Vietnam veteran in the audience. In fact, what I'd like to do is lead a round of applause for all these gentlemen uh, for what they mean to this country.
I'd like to begin my remarks by describing that I had the opportunity, opportunity to spend a day with Ambassador Kennan once, uh, about 15 years ago now, in the spring of 1989. And, and I realize, again, listening to some of the earlier presentations, uh, that that really was a seminal time for U.S. foreign policy with respect to the Soviet Union. Uh, and then you think, you walk that back a bit, that was the transition period from Reagan to Bush 1, uh, and a lot of things were happening uh, behind the Iron Curtain within the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. It was a very interesting time. In any case, I was a brand-new major, fresh from a troop assignment in Germany, newly assigned to the European Division of the Strategic Plans and Policy Directorate of the Joint Staff of the Pentagon. My boss at the time was a crusty old Army colonel, and I guess that describes me these days. But he called me in one morning and he said, Brown, you speak Ivy League, right? <laughs> Where was it that you went to school? Uh, and since generally I've tried to camouflage that in military context, I, I swallowed hard, I mumbled, uh, uh, Princeton, sir. And he said, Princeton, that's right, great. I've got a special mission for you. He proceeded to explain to me that Admiral Crowell, then chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and himself, I think, as you all know, also a Princeton alumnus, uh, who was in the process of reaching out to engage the Soviet military and who would be visiting Moscow himself in the near future, he invited Ambassador Ken into Washington for a series of discussions with himself and his senior staff on what was happening within the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. This, again, was the spring of 1989. President Gorbachev had announced the withdrawal of Soviet troops from Central and Eastern Europe the previous fall, and we at the Pentagon were watching with great interest as the communist regimes in Poland, Czechoslovakia, East Germany, Hungary, and others were already beginning to come apart at the seams. My mission, as it turned out, was to fly up to Princeton in a small plane, to pick Ambassador Kennan up, to fly him back to Washington, and to be his escort officer while at the Pentagon that day. It was a fascinating experience. The impression I remember is that of a courtly, unassuming gentleman of the old school, who though somewhat slowed physically even at that point, had a mind that was still razor sharp. I remember that when Admiral Crow came out into the waiting area to shake hands and lead Ambassador Kennan back for the one-on-one -on -one office call in his office, I jumped to attention while fumbling with Ambassador Kennan's hat and his briefcase and his walking stick, and I accidentally stepped on Admiral Crow's foot, leaving a three-inch black mark on his white Navy dress shoes. <laughs> Ambassador Kennan looked at me, Admiral Crow looked at me, and I immediately went into the position that we in the Pentagon refer to as name tag defilade, when you raise a book or briefcase or something to hide your name tag so the senior officers don't know what you're up to. So beyond uh, stepping on Admiral Crowell's white shoes, I remember two substantive things from Ambassador Kennan's visit that day. First, he refused to take credit of any kind for U.S. victory of any kind in the Cold War or for the already evident crumbling in the Soviet Empire. Second was a point he made time and again in his various meetings with us, that the U.S. government as a whole must now be very deliberative in its relations with the Soviet Union, and that we must be very careful about what we wish for because now it looked like we were about to get what we had wished for, and who could predict what kind of Pandora's box would be opened, as, as, opened up as a result. I also remember that my office had procured a number of copies of the X article, and one of my additional duties uh, while flying back to Princeton with him was to get him to autograph those articles. Uh, on the one he signed for me, he wrote to Major Dallas Brown, a fellow Princeton Tiger, George Kennan, class of 25. I've got that one in a scrapbook at home, and I suppose I should get it framed because uh, I imagine it will be probably be worth something one day. I describe all this because this symposium is indeed in honor of Ambassador Kennan and his legacy, but also because that year and that particular day in my personal experience marked a turning point in the focus of U.S. national security policy. Prior to that time, as we all know, in the 1970s and 1980s to that point, the U.S. military was focused primarily on the Soviet Union and on other communist states such as China and North Korea. 
The U.S. military maintained more than 250,000 troops in Europe, and the major reforger exercises that took place in Germany and the Benelux countries in the fall of each year were oriented east-west, with scenarios that involved deployments of two or more divisions from the United States, both as a signal to the Soviet Union and as an opportunity for the deploying units to test logistical procedures and to exercise the huge reinforcing equipment sets that were positioned in Germany and other countries in event of war with the Warsaw Pact. At the small unit tactical level, our training exercises and gunnery scenarios were always designed to get Soviet weapons, Soviet equipment, Soviet tactics, with battalion and brigade commanders drilling lieutenants and sergeants on how well they could detail the formations of the BMP-equipped Soviet motorized rifle regiment in the defense or the T-72-equipped independent tank regiment in the deliberate attack. After 1989 and 1990, however, and with the party atmosphere caught on videotape with the dismantling of the Berlin Wall, a particular data point, in my mind, it was clear that the paradigm had shifted. With the Panama intervention in 1990, and with the buildup to Desert Storm in the fall and winter of 1990 and 91, the focus of the U.S. military was in a different direction. It was in, actually in different directions, plural. I personally, by the way, like the descriptions of Desert Storm that I've read as the culminating and validating event of the post-Vietnam rebuilding of the American military, and that the weapons, equipment, and tactics designed for the waging of World War III on the North German plane garnered a quick and relatively painless victory against an incompetent and overmatched enemy in the desert environment. After Desert Storm, however, the U.S. military and my own service, the Army in particular, had to do some searching to find a direction for itself. General Powell, in fact, as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, came out and spoke to my Command and General Staff College class at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, in 1992. Uh, he's, a great, he's great on the stump. It was great hearing him this morning. It was great hearing him more than 10 years ago uh, at that event. He opened his remarks that day with a political cartoon that had been published recently in the Washington Post. It showed a rickety cartoon image of a Russian submarine submerged with Band-Aids on the hull, rivets popping off, and parts falling off. The caption read, The Hunt for a Threat by October. <laughs> he told us that day that there was no peer competitor for the U.S. military, or for the U.S. in general, on the international scene or even on the far horizon at that time. He advised us, though, to keep the faith to keep our powder dry, and to maintain the high training and readiness standards that had come to be associated with U.S. military forces. After a subsequent troop duty tour at Fort Hood, Texas, where we continued to train hard against composite Soviet-style formations and debated whether our tanks should be painted in woodland camouflage versus desert camouflage patterns, and a stint in the Persian Gulf region as an operations officer for Joint Task Force Kuwait, I was nominated to serve on the National Security Council staff as a director for global issues and multilateral affairs. When I reported for duty in late 1994, I learned that global issues in the Clinton-era NSC structural context had nothing to do with the Russians, the Chinese, the North Koreans, or any other remnants of the old Cold War paradigms. Rather, we really did deal with multilateral and coalition affairs, the Somalia intervention, the Haiti intervention, the Bosnia intervention. Elective surgery, a term used by Newsweek's Fareed Zakaria recently and echoed by many others to describe U.S. military involvement in areas or situations that were not direct threats to U.S. vital interests, had become the order of the day. This is not to say that no one at the NSC or at the Department of State or at the Pentagon was paying attention to the Russians or the Chinese, but in the case of the Russians, it was more management of the problems of a crumbling superpower, of loose nukes, organized crime, relations with the emerging democracies of Central and Eastern Europe, economic assistance to and investment in the former Soviet Union. On China, 
Though military planning and wargaming continue to project scenarios with respect to Taiwan and other regional contingencies, economic relations, more than anything else, seem to drive U.S. policy initiatives. I left the NSC staff in 1997 to take command of a tank battalion in Germany and subsequently deployed it to Bosnia for a year. Two quick images uh, ring in my mind from that experience. The first, and this in a semi-humorous mode, I hope, was that while on the overnight flight from Washington, Dulles to Germany, my brand-new wife and I were seated near a group of Russian fishermen who were flying back from Canada to Russia for their annual home leave. I was watching a pretty good movie, George Clooney and Nicole Kidman in The Peacemaker, ironically, which in a typical Hollywood fashion dealt with loose nukes, organized crime, relations with the emerging democracies of Central and Eastern Europe. But the vodka in the back of the plane was flowing pretty freely. These guys are going home for the first time in, in a year. Uh, and my wife came up to me after a while and asked what exactly I would be doing in Germany. I replied that I would be commanding my battalion. And she asked, well, well, why is it that we still have tanks in Germany? The Russian fishermen were asking her this, and they really wanted to know. <laughs> I started to give her some political mumbo-jumbo, uh, some political military mumbo-jumbo about the U.S. commitment to Europe, the integrity of the NATO alliance, the fact that the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe was still an American. But she smiled at me, and she said, that's okay, sweetie. You can play war games with your tanks when we get there. I'm going back to do vodka shots with the Russians. <laughs> what can you say? And again, I, I, I say that in a very, my, my wife's not here, by the way. If she was, she'd shoot me for talking about her this way, but that's what she said. Um, it, it caused me to stop and think, because really, why was I, a career U.S. Army officer, going to Germany? The Cold War had been over for almost 10 years to take command of a tank battalion. Uh, it was great tours that played out, and I'll get to that here in a minute. But, but the paradigms, inertia, NATO alliance, uh, some of our earlier speakers talked about uh, the over-militarization uh, of the U.S. policy in post-Cold War Europe, and, and, and I agree heartily uh, with the remarks I heard earlier today on that front. Once we did get to Germany, though, and I did take my command, I was ordered to prepare and deploy it to Bosnia. I took command of the Bershko sector in the north during the summer of 1988, and begin a series of courtesy calls on local mayors, religious leaders, civic leaders, with my fellow S-4 commanders whose sectors bordered my own. The chief UN police advisor in my sector was Russian, and a Russian airborne regiment was on my eastern flank, focused on the northeast portion of the Republic of Serbska. I made sure that the airborne regiment was the first of the neighboring units I visited because I was curious, if for no other reason. The police colonel was a gregarious fellow, and the Airborne Regimental Commander was an outstanding soldier. Both of them had been handpicked for their assignments, I'm sure. We set up a series of joint patrols and exchange visits so that our soldiers could get to know each other and learn about each other's weapons and equipment. It was all in good fellowship and all in good fun, but I always had the feeling that we were talking past each other. The Russians always seemed to have the Serbian best interests, or quite frankly, their own personal economic interests at heart. Old habits die hard. The Cold War was now over almost 10 years, but we continued to size each other up and make mental notes about the quality of troops, training, weapons, equipment, and ways of doing business. I don't think we ever really came to trust one another. It's interesting, as a side thought for my prepared remarks here, I heard what General Powell said this morning about uh, sitting down with, with uh, President Putin and with the Soviet foreign minister and so forth, excuse me, the Russian foreign minister, uh, and talking Turkey, talking straight up, and, and so on. But it seems to me things are in reality are a little bit different. Uh, not to make too much of my relationship with the Soviet commander and his unit in microcosm, but it seems to me that we always draw a circle around Russia. We put a little asterisk next to it, and we treat it differently. Uh, on the grand scheme, be it NATO-Russia Council, be it the G8 summits, we always try and talk to the Russians. We try and get them to agree to what we're up to, but we always sort of have a little asterisk next to them somehow out there that we're not really sure of what they're up to and that they're not really sure what we're up to, and we don't really, even after almost 10 years uh, since, or more than 10 years now since the end of the Cold War, that we really trust each other. 
and I'll just leave it at that. Turning now to my most recent overseas assignment, I deployed to Kuwait and then Iraq with Lieutenant General Jay Garner's post-conflict planning group as Operation Iraqi Freedom kicked off last year, which later became the Coalition Provisional Authority. I've been back and forth a number of times since, and as you might imagine, it's been quite a year. In my current position back at the Pentagon, we work a number of the day-to-day -day coordinating actions from the Department of Defense perspective. Police and new Iraqi army training, return of the UN to Iraq, interagency coordination for many of the political, legal, and economic measures being directed and implemented by Ambassador Bremer. I can address issues you may have on Iraq in the question and answer period, those I'm sure you'll appreciate. I can't make political judgments or express political opinions. As I sat down to think through these remarks over the past couple of weeks, I thought about trying to draw some parallels between the situation Ambassador Kennan was commenting on in the late 1940s with the long telegram and the X article and the situation confronting the U.S. today in the global war on terrorism. At first blush, there did seem to be some parallels, both communism on the one hand and fundamentalist, and I don't want to describe it as Islam because it's not, but al-Qaeda brand terrorism were both broad-based movements with deep-seated value systems that are formed to predominant U.S. ways of thinking. Both are movements that, that cross international boundaries and that manifested direct threats to U.S. vital interests. Both had autocratic and charismatic leaders who were almost worshipped by their multitudes of true believer followers. On second thought, though, comparisons between Stalin and the Soviet Union on the one hand and Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda on the other don't really work for me. To contain al-Qaeda or other terrorist groups in the years to come will require whole new ways of thinking and whole new sets of tools to get at some of the deep-rooted rooted problems that cause terrorists to become terrorists. I, after thinking it through and tossing around, I really think it's, it, really can't, it really can't be applied. Any sort of idea of a containment policy uh, for terrorism uh, today. I thought instead that I'd close with three lessons on international relations and international security affairs uh, drawn from Ambassador Kennan's writings that could be of value as the current administration or any subsequent administrations look at the very complicated world around us. The first of these is the true value of an educated, common sense, practical-minded assessment of problems in diplomacy and international relations that is removed from the pressures of domestic politics of the moment. When reading Ambassador Kennan's contemporary writings on issues such as the Berlin Crisis of 1947, the U.S. military conduct of the Korean War, or the early strands of U.S. involvement in Vietnam, it is amazing how prescient and how correct in retrospect his views were. In 1950, for example, referring to the French situation in Vietnam, in 1950, he wrote, we are getting ourselves into the position of guaranteeing the French in an undertaking which neither they nor we nor both of us together can win. It would be preferable to, to permit the turbulent political currents of the country to find their own level, unimpeded by foreign troops or pressures, even at the probable cost of an eventual deal between Vietnam and the Viet Minh and the spreading over the whole country of Viet Minh authority. Talk about a crystal clear perspective and a crystal clear crystal ball. Imagine if such a view had been heated in 1950 or even 10 or 15 years later, in 1960 or 1965. Second, as I have tried to read and tried to interpret the way Ambassador Kennan looked at the world, was his belief in the power of personal and professional diplomacy in the style of an earlier era, of being fluent in a foreign language or in foreign languages, and to be able to engage foreign leaders and foreign diplomats one-on-one -on -one in closed settings that are not scripted for the cameras or locked in by predetermined agendas. He wrote in his memoirs that the function of the career diplomat was, as it appeared to me, and I quote, a pure one, a matter of duty, dedication, reason, and integrity. Despite my distaste for the nature of the domestic political process, I never doubted in those years the basic decency of our national purpose, 
that the, de the desirability of our gaining the respect and understanding of others, the possibility of our playing a useful and constructive role in the world, and the propriety of our efforts to do so. Though I know that I am stepping outside my lane of personal professional experience to even comment on this, it seems to me that in this day of instantaneous communications and instant mass media, of cell phones and emails and fax machines and CNN, we seem somehow to have set aside many of the old diplomatic values and diplomatic arts. Uh, and, and I think that Ambassador Kennan would, would lament that. Third, and most interesting for me as a military officer who has been lucky enough to work in the interagency community and in a variety of political military assignments through the years, was a mistrust on Ambassador Kennan's part of military hierarchies in general and a mistrust of the military instrument of national power as a tool in solving problems of foreign policy. He, he wrote, for example, of the U.S. military in 1947 that they abhorred the concept of limited warfare and were addicted to doing things only in the most massive, ponderous, and unwieldy manner. Uh, I think that that particular statement, uh, if Secretary Rumsfeld saw that, he'd probably copy it and put it on his wall there at the Pentagon. Because uh, as I think many of you know, he's been trying to transform the military uh, to get the Army in particular uh, to think lighter, to be more agile, to be more mobile and so forth, prepared for worldwide contingencies. And, and, and again, my own service, uh, I hate to admit, but, but we are really locked uh, in Cold War uh, paradigms, units, uh, equipment, techniques, things of that nature. So, so I really believe there is something to this, even for our, for our, our present day. When critiquing General MacArthur's performance in Korea in 1950, Ambassador Kennan wrote, Military men have traditionally never been slow to find others to blame for their reverses. But I can think of no claim more preposterous than the suggestion that our adversary in Korea enjoyed some sort of unfair advantage through our inability to bomb in Manchuria, and that he'd not enjoyed it, our problems would have been solved. Uh, on warfare itself, he wrote, War is a matter of destruction, brutalization, and sacrifice of separations, domestic disintegration, and the weakening of the deeper fabrics of society. It is a process which of itself can achieve no positive aims. Military victory is only the prerequisite for some further and more positive achievement, which it makes possible, but, by, but, but it by no means assures. That last sentence, process which of itself can achieve no positive aims, but the prerequisite for some further and more positive achievement, could be applied directly to our situation in Iraq today. These are words to think about from a great American and a truly wise man, and words to bear in mind as we think through our further courses in Iraq, in Afghanistan, uh, and in the further global war on terrorism. I believe I'll stop here. I've taken much more time than I had planned to or should have this afternoon, and I'm sure that we'll all be happy to, to take on your questions and comments. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. I'm going to bring our speakers back to the title of this panel, which is The Future of American Diplomacy. Um, most of my career was spent overseas, 20 years of it, seven of those years in the Middle East. Uh, I'm an Arabic speaker. Uh, I spent a lot of time in Iraq. I covered, went in uh, with 1st Battalion, 1st Marines, and occupied Kuwait, was in the Shiite uprising in Basra until I was captured by the Iraqi Republican Guard and held prisoner for eight days. I was embedded with an Iraqi Republican Guard unit. <laughs> I went, went on and covered the Kurds. I made two trips with rebel Shiite guerrilla bands from Iran into the marshes during the uh, insurgency that was eventually crushed by the Iraqi regime. Um, but much of my job as the Middle East correspondent for the New York Times was covering the effort uh, on the part of the inspection teams to successfully dismantle and destroy the Iraqi weapon systems. 
as well as the sanctions, of course, that were imposed on Iraq. And when I read through the writings of Ambassador Kennan, I'm reminded not only in the wisdom of the policy of containment um, in terms of uh, our relationship with the outside world, but I think what many people forget is that Ambassador Kennan uh, not only uh, saved us from the horrific apocalyptic violence that could be delivered upon us by others, uh, but also uh, those very frightening elements within our own society, one thinks of Curtis LeMay, who called for uh, a massive uh, attack against the Soviet Union uh, early because we were, it was only uh, inevitable that we would have to do it later. And uh, Kennan uh, protected us, I think, uh, through, the, through the policy of containment, not only from others, but from ourselves. We, as a reporter, it was very clear to us that that policy of containment worked. The Secretary spoke this morning about uh, two choices, doing nothing or invasion. Well, in fact, we weren't doing nothing. And it seems to me, as someone who reported it, that the tragedy of the war in Iraq is that um, the diplomats, until the invasion, had won. And what I'd like to uh, pose to our speakers is how irrevocably, perhaps, um, this decision to use massive violence and unleash uh, horrific suffering within Iraq and engage in a process of social engineering which great ethicists like Reinhold Niebuhr or Crane Britain, of course, have warned us against, have damaged American diplomacy. After 9-11, I spent a year based in Paris covering al-Qaeda, which I came to walk away from my experience with al-Qaeda believing is a real threat, um, but also watched over the course of that year have we as a nation folded in on ourselves, alienating um, other nations, including nations in, in the Muslim world that did have a great deal of empathy for us after 9-11, but more importantly, those nations that share our values and that we should always act in concert with. And so I would like our speakers to address that issue of the future of American diplomacy, whether or not uh, they feel um, that uh, the actions that have been taken in the war in Iraq um, have hurt our ability at a time when the world, of course, is becoming more dangerous and more volatile. Uh, I'll answer it very quickly. I think there's no question uh, that we've done a lot of damage to our standing in the world uh, and engendered a lot of animosity around the globe, including among our allies. But uh, I think uh, there's no reason that that can't be repaired. First, I would note that everybody has a vested interest in working together to deal with al-Qaeda and with the terrorist threat more generally. We're all in this together. So they're very powerful incentives to cooperate for that reason. Uh, second point I would make, and Joe made this comment or this argument in his comments, and that is that they've run into really big trouble in Iraq, and as a result, they've had to go to the Allies, they've had to go to Kofi Annan, they've had to go to those institutions, those alliances that they said such disparaging things about in the run-up to the war. So there's been an about-face here, and I think that will be uh, the trajectory for the future. So I would argue that uh, in the future, we're not likely to see much of what we saw in the run-up to the war in Iraq. 
I think that we clearly saw a significant decline in American soft power, if that means the attractiveness of the United States. The Pew polls show that, uh, as I mentioned, it's at least 30 points per country in Europe, but it's even more dramatic in the Islamic world. Uh, if you look at a poll that was taken in Indonesia in 2000, 75 percent of the people — Indonesia, of course, is the largest Islamic country — uh, Seventy-five percent of the people in the year 2000 had a favorable view of the United States. In May 2003, that had declined to 15.15 percent. That's not good. Uh, sometimes people think of this uh, battle with uh, Islamic fundamentalism and terrorism as a clash of civilizations. It's not. It's a clash within Islamic civilization between a small group of extremists who want to return to a pure form of religion and are willing to use terror and force to do so, and a, mo a moderate majority who want things like consumer goods, education, health, and all the things that are part of a normal life. It's a clash within that civilization. And if you ask, how are we doing in the war on terrorism, we're not going to win it solely with hard power. We absolutely have to have hard power. You can't get rid of a Taliban government by attracting them. You're not going to get rid of Osama bin Laden by attracting him. But it's your soft power that determines whether Osama bin Laden is able to recruit from the moderate majority or not. In other words, you have to have both. Your hard power is necessary for those who are unattractable. But in terms of protecting against the recruitment from the madrasas and elsewhere, you have to have soft power, the ability to attract. So if we're serious about implementing this new strategy of the war on terrorism, we're going to have to change our investment patterns. Let me give you one number that indicates it. What's the ratio of what we spend on hard power and what we spend on soft power in the United States? Got any idea? 400 to 1. Something wrong with that pattern of investment. So I think, uh, Chris, to answer your question, that we're going to have to make some redressing of that balance. Uh, just a thought from my perspective, and again, uh, to comment, uh, frankly, on whether the way the war in Iraq was prosecuted has damaged, how much it damaged, and so forth. That's the kind of political question that I'm a little bit wary of even addressing in a public forum like this, <laughs> so I won't. I, I will say, though, two thoughts. Um, the first is that, that I'm a Kennedy School graduate. Uh, I, I was up there over 10 years ago now, uh, I first read uh, some of Professor Nye's articles about soft power while I was there. I remember thinking at first, well, this is much as the very devil. What, what is this all about and everything? But quite frankly, as I have, uh, if not roamed the world, I've been part of various operations uh, in the decade plus since then uh, in Haiti, uh, in Panama, uh, in, in, in Gulf War I and, and Gulf War II, so to speak. Um, soft power really is out there. Uh, and even if we're not putting money into it, um, you see the Coca-Cola signs. Uh, as General Powell mentioned this morning, you see the Starbucks coffee shops in, in all parts of the world. Uh, last week I was in Romania for a NATO peacekeeping conference, uh, which is something that an American had not attended uh, in the recent past because we've just been too busy uh, to go over and, and, and talk to the new uh, invitee nations uh, for NATO about peacekeeping or issues like this. And it was very interesting. I'm an Army colonel, so I'm a mid-level guy, to be straight out about it. Uh, but the Romanian chief of the general staff sought me out uh, and buttonholed me in a corner for over an hour because he wanted to offer up Romania to the United States as one of the possible lily pads 
uh, for projection of forces into the Middle East. So it's not, it's not quite so clear-cut that we've lost all this soft power or really lost all this diplomatic uh, uh, leverage in a number of countries who really see the U.S. as the, the big dog on the block. We have the economic power. Uh, they want economic investment. Uh, some countries want American bases in their countries. Uh, and it's just a very interesting mix uh, throughout the world of, of how that plays out. Thank you. We'll take a few questions. Wait, is there, there is a microphone or not? No. Okay, then keep the question short and please speak up. Um, well, I'll start quickly. Um, you know, there, did, did you hear the question? Should I repeat it? Um, you served in Vietnam. The speaker served in Vietnam. And he said, you know, what he would like all of us to respond to what the solution should be. What should we do now that we're there? Is that a fair summation of? And the second part? Right. Is, what's the impact on our society and image today, and is it anything like Vietnam? Um, I find a lot of parallels between what, happened, what is happening in Iraq and the insurgency that I covered for five years in El Salvador. Um, it, you, I, I'm watching week by week from a distance, of course, um, this insurgency form. Insurgencies are always peculiar animals. They don't... Uh, uh, when they draw from organized military forces, uh, these people don't turn out to be, have this sort of nimbleness and flexibility to be good insurgent leaders. Um, clearly, the power of the explosives uh, are uh, reaching massive proportions, as we saw a few days ago. Um, I see us sinking into an intractable problem. Um, I, I don't think we're going to get significant uh, aid from uh, countries, the coalition countries that supported us in the first Persian Gulf War, uh, the notion that somehow we can internationalize uh, the situation is, I think, um, uh, a fantasy. Um, and uh, I don't see a graceful exit because Iraq is the Yugoslavia of the Middle East, essentially of three countries. Um, there is a lot of enmity between the Sunnis who have dominated the Shiites and repressed the Shiites uh, for decades. And um, I, I don't have a, a quick and clear and easy answer. The second part of your question is, is it like Vietnam? Yes. I think it, it, we have fallen into what Robert J. Lifton calls an atrocity-producing situation, which the Israelis face in Gaza, which we faced in Vietnam, where we are surrounded by a sea of hostility, and everyone becomes the enemy, and we lash out with a kind of fury that uh, creates a cycle of violence 
um, a kind of death spiral of violence. You know, it's no accident that reporters are not allowed into the morgues of the city hospitals in Baghdad uh, because they don't want you to see how many Iraqi civilians' collateral damage are being killed in these firefights. Do you want to start down that end? Again, I'm a little reluctant to step into this. Um, my thought, though, is direct answer to the question relating to the Vietnam part uh, is not yet. Um, it's a very interesting problem in that when you look at the number of U.S. troops that are deployed in, in Iraq or around Iraq, add to those the ones in Afghanistan, add those to those the ones that are still in Bosnia and in Kosovo, uh, the, the force is stretched very, very, very thin. Um, I was thinking, I was seated out, out here front and center as General Powell was speaking this morning, and I, I raised my hand, wanted to ask him a question. I had a softball question and I had a hardball question in mind. The softball one was about Haiti. Um, the, the hardball one was, well, sir, uh, the numbers uh, of dead American soldiers, it's over 500 now and climbing on almost a daily basis. That's an entire infantry battalion of soldiers who are dead. And, and can you justify that for this, what I determined or, or what I mentioned in, in my talk, uh, for an elective surgery type operation? And I don't know what kind of answer he would have given to that other than, Brown, let me get your Social Security number and, and I'll talk with Don Rumsfeld about you. Hide that badge. Yeah, yes, indeed. Name tag that way. Yes, indeed. Um, I think it's something that we have to watch very carefully. I think right now the force is not broken the way Vietnam broke the U.S. military. Um, but again, it's only been a year. Uh, I share the concerns that, that, that we may be, we probably will be involved there for, for a, a long period of time. Um, you find, uh, and again, I've been back and forth a number of times over the course of the past year, uh, that generally speaking, the soldiers, uh, they're part of a unit. One thing we're doing here that we didn't do in Vietnam over time is that units are deploying as units as opposed to individual replacements. Therefore, soldiers have a chain of command. They have their buddies. Um, they've got the band of brothers thing going for them if they are in good units and so forth. At this point, those units are seeing the reenlistment rates are still good. Um, there's been some degradation in those and so forth, especially in the National Guard uh, and the reserves that have been called up and so forth. But, but I, I agree your point is well taken. We have to watch that very carefully. Uh, depending on how long this lasts for us? Uh, I don't think it's Vietnam. There's no Ho Chi Minh. There's no Ho Chi Minh Trail. There's no North Vietnam putting in supplies. There's no Russia and China supplying supplies. Uh, in terms of a tactical problem, the largest part of the violence is in the Sunni Triangle. Uh, if we don't get crosswise with the Shia, that's a big if, you can imagine a solution in which you do a deal with the Shia and the Kurds, and uh, you will be left with a situation which is not a happy situation. But uh, I would point out that the worst outcome, whether you believed it was wise or unwise to go into Iraq the way we did, is Iraq is a failed state which becomes an Afghanistan surrogate for terrorists. So whether we liked it or don't like it, uh, we're stuck with it. Now, if we're stuck with it, the worst outcome is to cut and run and leave a failed state for terrorists behind us. Then what are the best ways to approach it? It seems to me that the two ways to approach it are to use two terrible words uh, in terms of the English language, Iraqification and internationalization. Neither of these are going to work perfectly. Uh, they're, they're quite imperfect, but they're the best we have. And I think, therefore, that we are going to be there for some time, um, that it's going to be a slow process, but I don't think it's going to be as bad as Vietnam, and therefore I don't think it will have quite that same impact on our society. 
uh, and I'm encouraged by Dallas's point that it's not had that impact on our military yet. As somebody who served as Assistant Secretary of Defense, let me tell you, I have enormous respect for the quality of our military. The people that I served with were just first rate, and if they get torn apart, that would be a true tragedy. Uh, <clears throat> with regard to the question of what we should do now, uh, I really don't have a good answer. And as I like to tell journalists who call me and say, all right, Mr. Smarty Pants, you were against the war, uh, but now we're in there, what do we do now? I always say, I don't have an answer, and this is why I told you not to go in in the first place. <laughs> I mean, I've, you know, if LBJ had called me up in March 68 and he said, John, I'm in real trouble, tell me what to do, uh, I'm sorry to say I wouldn't have an answer. And as I often say to people, you know, when I went to West Point in the 1960s, uh, during some pretty terrible times, uh, I learned two lessons. One is stay out of the developing world with military force. Uh, and number two, recognize that there are some problems in international politics that have no solution. And I think that uh, this is sort of the case here. I think the best general solution would be to get out uh, sooner rather than later and do everything you can to sort of booger the system inside Iraq so you can leave. But I don't think we operate that way anymore. There are just too many powerful forces at play here in the United States to want to keep us in that area for a long period of time. So I don't think uh, we're going to get out, and I don't think we're going to solve this one. I would also note that if you think about this, if you're going to do Iraq, it was very important that you uh, make it go smoothly in the first year, because you really had a window of about one year before nationalism kicked in. Uh, before you started looking like a real occupying force. So it was very important in that first year to do it right. Uh, we completely bungled the first year. For those of you who haven't read the Jim Fallows piece in the most recent issue of The Atlantic, I would recommend that you go read it. It is really stunning the extent to which the Bush administration didn't plan against the possibility that things would not go the way they predicted. But they didn't. And therefore, we blew the first year. So now we're going to go into the second year, which is when the trouble is likely to start because nationalism is likely to kick in big time uh, with uh, a lot of trouble ahead. Now, with regard to its effect on the American military and its effect on society, uh, I don't understand how we're going to be able to maintain 100-plus thousand troops uh, in uh, Iraq for any lengthy period of time. We really had to stretch to get this second tranche in. We are really pushing the limits of the system in terms of the regular army and especially in terms of the National Guard and the reserves. And if you believe, as Condoleezza Rice says, that we have a generational commitment here, there's going to have to be a third tranche, a fourth tranche, a fifth tranche. That's 100-plus thousand troops every year. Where are those people going to come from? Do you really think you can push the reserves this hard and do that? Do you really think you can push the regular army this hard and uh, and not break it, uh, I would not bet a lot of money on that. And I'm sure Colonel Brown could tell us all sorts of stories about people he knows in the military whose personal lives are being wrecked by this situation. Now, what's the effect on society? The fact of the matter is that most of us are not 
paying much of a price at all for this war on terrorism. I mean, it is kind of hard to deal with these big tax cuts when we're all rich like we are, right? I mean, it's a, it's a real sacrifice. Right? The sacrifice is being borne by a small chunk of the population, young kids, you know, from Hispanic families or middle America. The elite's not sending their children there. And the number of people who are dying, it's terrible that they're dying. It makes me sick to my stomach that any one person has died over there because I thought the war was unnecessary to begin with. But we're not talking about the kind of numbers that we had during the Vietnam War. As most of you know, that number was 58,000, right? We're not even up to 1,000 yet. I understand it's early, but we're not at 58,000 or anything close to that. And when you marry that fact, the fact that your children, for the most part, are not serving, uh, it's hard to see that the society is going to be torn apart the way it was in the 60s. And I was in West Point between 1966 and 1970, and I marched Armed Forces Day parades down Fifth Avenue every spring, and I can tell you how ugly it got back in those days. And uh, we're not going to hit that uh, low point. But it is going to get very messy, and you already see that in the election. There's a good reason that the Democrats are so mobilized this time against the Republicans. There's a good reason there's so much animosity towards President Bush. And the longer this war drags on, the more the society is going to be polarized and the uglier it's going to get. That's all very unfortunate. But again, it's one of the principal reasons we shouldn't have got in to begin with. Thank you. We'll take two more questions. Let me just see. If, are there any students? Let me, are there any? Okay, go ahead. Well, now I want to do two students. Yeah, why don't you repeat it since you're going to answer it? I think, I think, I think the question was addressed to me. But yeah. Tell me, sir, if I, if I repeat it correctly. Was the opposition of France and Germany uh, because of the general problem of American power or a particular objection to a bad policy? Uh, sometimes people will say that, well, you know, the Americans are going to be resisted because it's inevitable that it's a structural problem. We're the big kid on the block. There's always resentment of big kid on the block. There's a bit of that, but it's worth remembering that in 1946, we were even bigger kid on the block compared to other countries than today in terms of our share of world product and our military dominance. We were the only nuclear power then. Um, basically, there is a structural problem, the resentment of the U.S. Uh, because of its size, but you can do something about that by the way you implement your policy. The type of foreign policy, your style, the legitimacy, what I call soft power, makes a difference. And if you look at the way we went about the policy, uh, I think that made it doubly difficult. You had a situation where the Secretary of State was trying to form alliance while the Secretary of Defense was sticking his finger in the French and German eye. That's not a very healthy way to try to build a coalition. Um, there was a President Bush, if we had followed the advice that President Bush used in the 2000 election, we would be far better off. Remember, he said that if we are a humble country, others will respect us. If we're an arrogant country, they will not. Unfortunately, that advice was not followed in all parts of his administration. Thank you. Two more quick questions. Let's get, are you a student? Let's get any students who have questions. Okay, go ahead.
What is the ideal strategy for containing Saddam Hussein? You're saying if he did? If he got weapons of mass destruction? Well, I would have uh, pulled all of our troops out of the Gulf. You folks should understand that from 1945 until 1990, when we not only worried about regional instability, we not only worried about Iran or Iraq dominating the globe, but we also worried about the Soviet bear dominating the globe. We had an over-the-horizon capability. You all remember the rapid deployment force? It was designed to come into the region if we had trouble. What's quite amazing here is it was after 1991, when we adopted dual containment, right, that we came in and stayed in the Gulf in a permanent way. So I would have pulled our forces out of the Gulf. I would have kept potent over-the-horizon capability. And then I would have drawn some red lines and communicated them to Saddam. And I would have told him that he cannot cross those red lines. And I believe it would have been easy to keep him behind those red lines. And had he crossed the red line, gone back into Kuwait again, I would have whacked him good the way we did the first time. Uh, but you want to remember, the first time he went into Kuwait, he asked us for our permission. He just didn't go into Kuwait by himself. He asked for our permission. And April Gillespie, acting on directives from the State Department, basically said it was okay if he went into Kuwait. The next time he asks us whether he can go into Kuwait in the scenario you're describing, they should send me over instead of April Gillespie, and I'll tell him in no uncertain terms that he can't go into Kuwait. And with regard to the possibility of him using nuclear weapons to blackmail us, as I said to you before, if the Soviet Union could not use nuclear weapons to blackmail us, how is it that he could use nuclear weapons to blackmail us? The answer is he can't. Now, I want to be very clear. I'd rather he not have nuclear weapons than have them. But if he has them, we can contain him. If we contain the Soviet Union, we surely can contain Iraq. One more question. Uh, he, he's asking a question. 
he's talking about Kennan's um, understanding of the Cold War and um, formulation of a policy and whether or not, as a graduate of Princeton in 2002, and he talked about Baker coming and speaking, you know, we've not entered an era and whether uh, there shouldn't be a formulation uh, as monumental to deal with this new problem, Al-Qaeda. Um, I'm just going to say something very briefly, having spent a lot of time in the Middle East and studying Al-Qaeda, and that's one word, empathy. If we don't have empathy and understanding for those who are arrayed against us, we are doomed. And never forget that Kennan was a Russian speaker and somebody who knew Russian history, um, the intricacies of the Soviet Union, um, and in large part was able to understand how the Soviet culture and mind operated. And as somebody who's devoted so much of their life to living in the Islamic world, and in particular the Arab world, I'm terrified by how little empathy we have. And until we gain that empathy, which includes not only an understanding but a respect for the religious, historical, and cultural traditions of those who unfortunately are now arrayed against us, we're doomed. I'll uh, say a few words uh, in response to the excellent question. Uh, the first point I would make is that there's no doubt that al-Qaeda is a fundamentally different kind of threat than either Iraq or the Soviet Union during the Cold War. In the case of both Iraq and the Soviet Union, you were dealing with another state. And most people believe that it is possible to contain or to deter uh, another state. Uh, you can't contain or deter al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda has to be destroyed. And as long as al-Qaeda is out there or a similar organization that has its crosshairs on the United States is out there, we have to find it and destroy it. And I don't think there's much dispute about that. Nobody's talking about containing al-Qaeda. We're talking about whether to contain Iraq. And the $64,000 question is how you do it. And I think that, broadly speaking, there are two ways of approaching the problem. And I do believe we've had a debate on this. It's not clear who's won. Uh, and the debate revolves around the question of why do they hate us? If you believe that they hate us because of who we are, there's nothing we can do in terms of changing our policies to rectify the situation, to get to the root causes of the problem. What we have to do is transform the region. This is what the Bush administration is doing. What most people don't understand is that the underlying assumption that drives the Bush administration's foreign policy is that they hate us because of who we are. It's the clash of civilizations. Therefore, you transform the region, i.e., you make them look like us. And if they're like us, they're not going to hate us because we're all liberal democracies hooked on capitalism, right? That's their basic worldview. The alternative view is that they don't hate us because of who we are. They hate us because of our policies. Specifically, they hate us because we had troops in northern Saudi Arabia, which clearly drove Osama bin Laden up a tree. They hated us because of our sanctions on Iraq. They hated us because of our support of Ariel Sharon's colonial policies on the West Bank. They hated us because of our support of repressive regimes in places like Egypt, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia, and so forth and so on. If that's the case, then you can change the policies and do a great deal to ameliorate the 
the terrorism problem. So the question you have to ask yourself, and most people who've thought about this do ask themselves this question, is what do you think is driving this? And what, you ans what answer you come up with influences in great part what you think the solution to the problem is. If you were trying to write a long telegraph for al-Qaeda, it would be long and we only have a short time. Uh, so I will just telegraph a few thoughts. <laughs> I, I, the book I mentioned that's published next week has a chapter on this. So if you want to pursue it, I, uh, that'll go further. Basically, a strategy for al-Qaeda has to have two parts. Uh, Rumsfeld actually said at one of his leaked memos, how do we know the metric of whether we're winning the war on terrorism? Are we killing and deterring more than the madrasas are producing and recruiting? And that means that you have to, for al-Qaeda itself, have close civilian cooperation with other governments in intelligence sharing, in police work across borders, tracing financial flows, and so forth. But that's only half, or perhaps less than half. You also, on the other half, have to prevent the recruiting. You have to do things like adjusting policies, which are red flags in the uh, Islamic world, you have to do much more in our public diplomacy. It's crazy that a country which is the leading communications country in the world is outclassed by somebody hiding in a cave. That doesn't have to be the case. You have to do much more of exchanges, not let worries about visas curb the flow of Arab students into this country. You have to do much more about opening the region in terms of trade and investment and change. There is a majority in these countries which wants many of the things that we want in life, not to be Americans or look like us, but to have such things as education, a decent standard of living, health, and other sorts of things. And we have to focus on how we approach that half, and that half is soft power. So essentially, yes, hard power for al-Qaeda, but soft power to prevent al-Qaeda making incursions into the moderate majority. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming.